This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. James Huffman, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at Wittenberg University. Dr. Huffman's most recent publication is Down and Out in Late Meiji Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2018. Dr. Huffman, thank you so much for talking with me today. By all means, it's a delight. Your earlier work was all about the press and the development of journalism in the Meiji period. Now you've recently published this book, Down and Out in Late Meiji Japan, which is looking at a different group, and in this case, the poor people living in the slums of Japan's major cities in the 1880s and 1890s. Could you tell us how you made this transition into this new topic? Sure, I'll be happy to. I've always been interested in many ways more in the people in society more generally than in the elites, although I've written a great deal about the elites. And one of the things that, as I worked on the press, that interested me in particular was the continual popularization of the press in the major years. It went early on from being a totally elitist press with big circulations of 5,000 oriented completely toward politics to becoming gradually more and more a medium of the people. And when I say the people, I mean what would have been called the Hamin or the commoners. And then by the 1890s, increasingly, the press had gone in a very different direction, not only including as subscribers, but in aiming at the masses, the mean shoe, which means common people, the Hamin, the commoners. By the end of the Meiji years, the, the first part of the 20th century, you found the press playing a clear role in stimulating popular protests. Leading editors would say on such and such a date, often tomorrow, there'll be a rally to oppose this or that in politics. And there would be great turnouts. I mean, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. I was interested in who those people were who, who turned out. And that was at least one of the things that led me to begin looking at the daily lives of common people for a number of reasons, one of which was there was a great deal of publication in the 1890s and early 20th century about the very poor. The Hinmin, or it means literally poor people, but it referred to those who were among the poorest of the poor, and in particular those who lived in Hinmin Kutsu, which usually is translated slums. The literal meaning is caverns of poor people. And a lot of reporters were looking at them. And I suddenly realized as I began looking at them, these are the people who are attending the political rallies, who are having a great deal of impact on the government. And so I set out to do a study of what their lives were like as a completely unstudied segment of the Japanese populace at that time. Just kind of simply, what was the nature of life and of daily life for the people who were totally poor and totally overlooked in terms of scholarship, both in Japan and in the United States? 
that's a great point about these people being overlooked. So often yes. the history of the Meiji period is this history of top-down institutions and the modernization that's happening at the elite level. Very much so, so can you tell us a bit more about what life was like for these people who were down and out in late Meiji Japan? Oh, I'd be happy to. <laughs> and the first thing I would say, they've not totally been overlooked. There's, there's one scholar at Doshisha University Nakagawa Kiyoshi, who hasn't looked specifically at their daily life, which was, which is what I've tried to do, but who nonetheless has looked at the social structures that involve these people. But he's one of the only ones. And what I found in, there are two or three things that I've found in, in looking at them. One is the development and the growth of slums in particular was a phenomenon of the late 1880s to the early 20th century. Because primarily, one, industrialization and modernization in the cities was creating a raft of new jobs of all kinds. And at the same time, Japan had, in the countryside, gone through terrible economic problems. Village families couldn't afford to support everyone. And so you have this pretty massive movement beginning in the mid-1880s into the cities. And so a certain part of it is these are new people, new city dwellers who settle often near factories because that's where the cheap housing was and because that's near to where the work was. And you have slums grow up rapidly. Their daily lives, one, they were poor. And what I've tried to do quite consciously is not talk about these people in my book as parts of systems. You can't totally avoid that. I haven't looked at it primarily in terms of theory though again, there are certain theorists who've influenced me, but primarily trying to understand how did they experience life. And there are two or three things that one can say about that. One is they were incredibly hardworking, despite middle-class images of poor people being lazy and things of that sort. The average work month was perhaps 25 days. The average work day was usually about 12 hours. In other words, six days a week. The work was grinding and difficult. Also, very much in keeping with what we often think about, life was hard in many ways. Because of low wages, everyone had to work. The mother would usually work part-time, part-time being at home, cooking, um, taking care of the, the tiny quarters in which they lived, but also taking in work to supplement the family income. The father, of course, worked these long hours that I've talked about. But what's particularly striking is that children almost all had to work also. Even if they were school age, they couldn't go to school. And in the cities, laws specifically made exceptions to the compulsory education for poor children. Because if the children didn't work, there wasn't food to put on the table. And you put everyone's income together. I, one family I've looked at, we don't have names for them, but they're a real family. There was a teenage son and an even younger daughter, and they both worked full time. She had a factory, he had, and he, I think, was at a printing firm. And of course, that meant the kids didn't get an education that they needed in the modern era. That's one of the real problems of life. Another is that because of poverty and because their nutrition was not very good, they were susceptible to illnesses. So when epidemics struck, cholera, TB, they were particularly vulnerable. What you find is much higher death rates in the areas where they lived 
among people who contracted illness, and it's because of lack of medical care. They, of course, were also vulnerable when problems like when Tokyo, of course, was given to fires and they lived in the most densely populated areas of all. They tended to live in one-room apartments made of very flimsy wood that was susceptible to fires. They lived in, particularly in Tokyo, along the riverside in what was known as Shitamachi or the low city, areas that were near the Sumida River and near canals so that when there were floods, they would be, their areas would be particularly flooded. So you have this whole range of different problems that made life tough in every way. At the same time, and one of the major things that I hope I have to contribute with this book is they lived life as fully and as richly as anyone else. I have a section that I say that poor people had fun. They were as engaged in the festivals of the nearby temples as the middle class were. They attended fireworks like everyone else. They also, I found, were extremely ambitious. Uh, Nakagawa, whom I'm the scholar at Doshisha, whom I mentioned earlier, has looked at ambition and he's found a clear mobility upward, very slow, glacial almost at times, but over one or two or three generations, a clear upward mobility, so that in some ways you have slums with people moving through as generations passed because they were ambitious. You have lots and lots of stories of individual success cases, as well as stories of, dis of dysfunctional people like you have in all classes. But ambition was, was a very important part. And then the thing I started with, which has been fascinating to me, is they were politically in tune with what was going on. They read newspapers. In the 1890s, the journalist Kuroiwa Shuroku began a little paper. It was called Red Journalism. Yorozu Choho was the name of it. And it was called Red Journalism because he published on red paper to try to get attention. And he wrote that his goal was to publish newspapers that could be read by everyone and that were cheap. And the mainstream papers laughed at him. But by the early 20th century, they were often emulating him. And by the early 1900s, his paper had a circulation of 100,000, which made it, I think, the biggest paper in Tokyo at that time. There were some bigger papers in Osaka. And at least a third of his readers were Hinmin, the poor people I've been talking about, who said something about literacy and also says something about the fact that they were, despite the difficulties or sometimes because of the difficulties of life, they were attuned to what was going on in the broader world. And thus they took part in these demonstrations. And when there were particularly, for example, the Hibia riots of 1905, which were riots at Tokyo's People's Park, as Hibia was called, they started with demonstrations against the government for what the Japanese people regarded as soft or inadequate negotiation at the end of the Russo-Japanese War. They turned violent and there were considerable numbers of deaths, buildings burned, etc. And among the people arrested, a significant number were rickshaw pullers, one of the groups that I've looked at quite a lot. And probably half of those arrested were quite clearly from the poor populations. 
And I should say their demonstrations had a lot of influence. They brought down cabinets. They resulted in streetcar fare increases being put off, though usually not permanently put off. They had a great deal of impact. So I find a really interesting combination or balance in their lives. On the one hand, there's no question life was extremely difficult. There was nothing noble about poverty. But on the other hand, I find people who themselves were most impressive in their persistence. As one journalist said, in the school of poverty, you had to learn the lessons or you died, the lessons of how to survive. Matsubara was his name, and he said, you know, we have much to learn from them for that very reason. Can you situate us a bit? You mentioned that people in Tokyo are living along the Sumida River. I imagine there were also areas of Osaka. Yes. But then also in, in the 1880s, you mentioned this impoverishment of the countryside. I imagine this has something to do with the Matsukata deflation. Could you talk about some of those things that are bringing people to the slums and then map out the slums a bit for us as well? Right. It, it's clearly the Matsukata deflation, which hit the countryside even more than hit the cities. And it created tremendous economic problems, you know, as much as starvation, great loss of land throughout rural Japan. And farm families again and again made decisions that they couldn't feed everyone. And so second sons, third sons, and it was almost always sons, would be sent off to the city. And in Osaka, they tended to be in the southern part of the city as in Tokyo, in areas that were near near waterways and near factories. There had been a great deal of poverty in Tokyo prior to this, but it was pretty much dispersed throughout the city. Now, more and more, they came in and settled in certain concentrations, so that you had three or four areas, all of them pretty much in the northeastern part of the city, that were major concentrations that were called Hinminkutsu, as I said, caverns of the poor. And one other interesting thing, it's, it's related, a bit of a tangent, is that another option that families had was to send their kids abroad. And I've done a fair amount of work on the fact that other groups of impoverished farmers went to Hawaii, Brazil. I, I've, I've not studied South America, but I have studied the immigration to Hawaii. And by early 20th century, you had something like 80,000 Japanese working on the sugar plantations initially, then on other kind of plantations and another kind of work in Hawaii. And they had a very a different kind of poverty. In fact, one of the things that interests me, I've, I ended up spending a fair amount of time looking at differences between poverty among immigrants to Hawaii and poverty in the cities and found that there was fairly equally shared economic hardship poverty felt tremendously different depending on where you were and what the structures were like. In Hawaii, it was initially a situation of great instability, a good deal of crime, of uh, prostitution, of gambling. And then plantation owners who had initially encouraged only men to come because they thought they were better workers, began bringing women. And two or three things dramatically changed the situation in Hawaii. One was the creation of stable families. Another was the arrival of particularly Buddhist missionaries who set up churches that became social centers for Japanese in the plantations. And another was the establishment of schools. 
And poverty for large numbers of Hawaiian families lasted much more briefly. There was faster mobility, and I think part of it's because of the stable structures that were created. That partially had to do with the plantations, but also had to do with institutions within the communities. Back in Japan, rural poverty, I found, felt very different from poverty in the cities. Farmers were just as poor, sometimes even poorer than they were in the cities. But several things modified the feel of it. One was nature. Villages tend to be in areas that are mountainous and filled with rivers. I discovered some people who would write almost lyrically about rural farm life. You never found anyone who wrote lyrically about urban slum life. And part of it was the natural setting. Part of it was the fact the natural setting meant that even in times of drought, you still probably were going to be able to find some food on the mountainside. As, as one friend said to me, if you need to eat bark, it's good to live near trees that have bark. There were mountains, of course, with, with vegetables and so forth. And the village setting also tended to be much more communal. By the end of Meiji, slums were often developing a sense of community. But in the first 15 years or so, there was not much community in slums in the cities, whereas in the villages, of course, there was generation on, on generation of community, something that could be uh, really hard if you had an individualistic strip bent because it meant following rules. It meant you knew and everyone knew what boys could do and what girls could do, what men could do and what others could do. But nonetheless, when there were economic problems, people helped each other. People, even who broke the rules, were nonetheless considered part of a, a village family. So there are a number of things in village poverty that I wouldn't say made it better. I might go as far as to say that, but certainly made it feel different, even less a sense of poverty because of the way in which it was shared in rural areas, whereas in the city, you couldn't help being very much aware of the people who were much more affluent than you because you lived close to them and you worked for them. And when we look at the urban history of Tokyo, the 1880s is the first time that there's really a citywide urban planning movement, first with Governor Matsuda in 1880, then Governor Yoshikawa takes it up in the mid-80s. Sure. But what's remarkable in, in this 1880 plan that Matsuda puts out, he says one of the problems facing the city is what he called himpizakyo, basically the mixing of the rich and the poor in the central business district. And so this whole 1880 plan is basically a slum clearance plan. Very interesting. To move these poor people out and move the factories out, centralize all of the government buildings and other kind of facilities as a way to separate the rich and the poor. And so I'm wondering, what was the government reaction to this influx of you know, the down and out? In, in this case, it obviously seems to be somewhat antagonistic. Was there other charity programs set up or were people pretty much left to their own devices? There was very little charity. And you're right. I mean, there, there was a great deal of concern about getting the slum areas, making them at the least invisible, getting them away from the areas that were more affluent, the areas that foreigners saw more. Though, interestingly, the major poverty wards were Honjo and Asakusa and Fukugawa and Shaya, and they're in areas that were also touristy areas with Sensoji Temple and, and the, the Sumida River, but they were away from the, the central business district and the areas of greater affluence. When it came to assistance, there were social reformers who cared about assistance, 
but they're they're small in number and the government efforts at assistance are almost absent. I can't remember it exactly talking here, but in a given year, the total number of people who received any kind of government assistance would be something like 200, very small. There were several individual efforts at schools for poor people. And if there was a major disaster, of course, there would be some kind of major outpouring of charity from the emperor and from rich industrialists, but they were, they were minor. On the whole, there simply was no social net. And that's another of the, the really serious problems that they had to deal with. the press has played a central role in your research and sure. reporters in particular. And, and I believe you were a reporter at one point as well. But You're good, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned these reporters like Kuroi Washuroku, Matsubara. Mm-hmm. You've also written about Tanaka Shozo, who, who's a very socially activist reporter. One of my favorite Japanese. <laughs> Can you say that these are muckraking journalists? That, or it was, is there a Japanese Jacob Reese? Or, I mean, were there people who were advocating on behalf of these people in the slums of Japan? That's, that's an interesting question. I would say there, there's less advocacy than, than there is just plain reporting. Now, Tanaka Shozo, of course, is, he's an activist through and through. But people often ask me, in fact, I have no question that comes up as often as, how do you learn about the poor people? And that's an issue because they don't write about themselves very much. And there, there are two or three sources, one of which is government records and surveys, and particularly in things like crime, the government records are, are really useful. And then there are also people who were poor, who became literary figures and wrote about their poverty. But the far and away, the, the main source is journalists. There was a period, 1890s and early 1900s, when the Shakai Mondai, the social problem absolutely preoccupied a lot of journalists. And the result was several journalists who gave major swaths of their career to studying the Shakai Mondai. And the Shakai Mondai for them was primarily the slums. That's the major thing that they thought of when they talked about it. And so what you have is a great deal of writing about them, of investigative journalists, the one who maybe is most known, I've not mentioned, is Yokoyama Gennosuke. And they would spend major amounts of time, sometimes in disguise, living in poverty, living in slum areas, living in cheap lodging houses, the Kichin Yado themselves, and writing about it. And they say things in their writing about the need for change. Matsubata, for example, makes the comments at times that charity is nothing but a little bit of repaying for the the stealing that we have done from the poor by not because of not giving them adequate wages but by and large they write from a vantage point of i would say it's a pity more than really pushing for reform or for change so it may be muckraking but it's not muckraking with a major goal of of changing things 
in my own research on urban planning of Tokyo in the 1880s, I do turn to those newspapers quite a lot. And you often see those types of editorializing comments. And I mean, it's not surprising then that these journalists are, maybe it's not muckraking all the way, but it's still highlighting these problems that are confronting the government. And it really does kind of bespeak the very kind of antagonistic presence that some of these newspapers had. Oh, very much so. Yes, I mean, one of the characteristics of the press is this constant tension between papers that were anti-government and papers that were pro-government. Well, moving in a, in a different direction. I mean, one of the things that absolutely fascinated me in my earlier studies of the press was trying to figure out why is it that the government would attempt to crack down on the press. And the, the press laws were pretty draconian in the in the Meiji period. And yet you never stopped having newspapers that were sharply critical of the government. And it finally dawned on me. I, I say in my life, I learn things slowly and then all of a sudden the lights go on. And it finally dawned on me at one point that what you have is different factions. Now I'm talking about establishment papers more, not the new papers that, that I've been talking about. But at any given point, the faction that the paper was tied to might be in or out of power. They might be part of the Ito faction or part of the Okuma faction. And when Okuma was in power, they would become pro-government. And when Okuma was out, they would be anti-government. But the factions they were with were strong enough, even when they were out of power, to keep the papers from just being destroyed by the draconian laws. But you always have a significant portion of the press fighting against the government. And then you certainly have significant numbers who are just more anti-system in their orientation, which I would say was true of the populist papers, like the paper of Kuroiwa that I mentioned, or another paper, Nirokushimpo, which was the paper of Akiyama Teisuke. And both of those got their subscribing base from poor people. And so they were fighting against the government much of the time except when it came to issues of patriotism. And on that, most of the papers were all aligned with the government. Much like we were saying earlier, the history of the down and out mm-hmm. in Meiji Japan also kind of gets left out of the story of modernization. In contemporary coverage of Japan, the poor people are often left out again. And when talking about slums of Tokyo, the one that comes up from the early Meiji period and even till today is the neighborhood of Sanya right. up in, in northeastern Tokyo. And and now I understand that even this neighborhood is is kind of gentrifying oh. as a result of the 2020 Olympics and backpackers coming in. Do you see continuities or what's happening with the state of the poor people in Tokyo now? Actually, the slums themselves pretty much vanished after the great earthquake of 1923, partially because of efforts to not let them reestablish. And when you talk about Japan today, I... I have spent some time, just as one does, in Fukugawa and in Sanya. I have a former student who very proudly took me through Sanya just a year or two ago and uh, was happy to show me where the old Yoshiwada or pleasure quarters were, but it doesn't look much different from any place else in Tokyo right now. And Fukugawa, the same is true. You, there's no way you would know that there were slums there. Almost no way you would know there are slums there when you go through. So it's quite a different situation now. And as you said, there are also, for one thing, it is a different era when it comes to government and poverty. I did a little bit of work, you know, trying to 
compare what I had found with Japan of the 1990s, early 21st century. And uh, one clear difference is there is a general public view that poverty ought not to exist, that there ought to be equality of opportunity at least. And there was no view of that. Poverty was considered as normal in the major years. There also are significant social welfare programs today, inadequate perhaps, but significant, and they simply weren't there in the period that I've looked at. And then, yes, the physical slums are, are just not there today. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.